make a difference. And, and it, was, it was good. It was great. You actually do serve the Jamaicans. We've got some pictures back here. Uh, I think we got John Aguilar and somebody sifting. Yeah, there's Bree. Who else do we have? We have Kyla slinging some slop on a house. Some other people are sifting. And then fearless Alex Cooper Gray up there looking busy. That's the only work she did all week. Uh, yeah. But, but then when you actually start doing some of the work, you realize it doesn't always go according to plan. You realize very quickly that you're not in charge at all. It turns out those very skilled, those very nice, and those very patient Jamaican workers are actually in charge. Here's one of my favorite pictures. I don't know if she's here or not, Ashley Reichert. She's trying her best. You got that judgy Jamaican behind, just kind of looking at her work like, nah, that's not good. I'm in charge here. He wasn't judgy. He's real nice. She's doing her best. But have you ever had a moment when you've realized that you are not in charge? You thought you were, but from some sort of circumstances, something happened, you realize, wow, I'm not in charge. King David, the guy we're going to read about tonight, he had a moment like this, and we're going to read about it tonight. And for him, this isn't a, a realization that he's not in charge. It wasn't painful for him. In fact, it was just the opposite. It was liberating. It was refreshing, and it was empowering to him. And so go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We are continuing our march through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. We'll say goodbye to 1 Samuel, say hello to 2 Samuel, kind of in the first third of your Bible if you've got it. While you're doing that, let me set the scene for us. So King Saul has exited the picture. King Saul was anointed king by Samuel, but he was an unfaithful king, and he is gone. And now David has taken center stage. And since Saul's death, you would think, okay, Saul's out of the picture. Things are nice and easy for David, but that's far from the case. He's got troubles inside his kingdom and outside his kingdom. Inside, and this is 2 Samuel 1 through 6. If you haven't read those before, read them. It's a, it's a fascinating story. He's got to defend himself from people trying to assassinate him. So Saul's descendants, his, his kids, his grandkids, his cousins, all that, they're still trying to reclaim the throne. So David has to deal with them. David also has these advisors that are not being truthful with him. They're lying to him. They're not telling him the whole truth. So he's got that issue to deal with. Uh, externally, he's got all of these other pagan peoples, pagan nations that are warring against his kingdom, the Amalekites, the Philistines. So he's got a lot to deal with. And throughout all of this, through all these threats, the sense that we get is David is a different kind of king. He's handling the situations unlike Saul. He's asking for God's help. He's wondering what to do. He's conducting himself above reproach, you might say. And so as you read this, like, man, this, this is a different kind of king. Things are looking great. He is very much at the center of this story. And so when we pick it up in chapter 7, verse 1, now when the king, that's David, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see, See, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, and do it all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. You see, when David has rest, he wants to build God a temple. He's living in a house of cedar, and cedar is very expensive. If you live in a house of cedar, you're on MTV Cribs back in the day. You are on easy street, but God... David realizes he's in a tent. This is the tabernacle. This has been wandering in the wilderness for maybe hundreds of years now. It's probably moldy, falling apart. That's where God is. So David realizes he's in a nice house. He's living in greater luxury. And so now what he wants to do is he wants to do something for the Lord. But, but, this request shows that the David, he's on his way to believing that God is just like these 
other gods. You see, if I'm a pagan and I'm a king and my God does something for me, I'm going to pay him back. If he blesses me, well, the God demands that I pay him back. It was kind of a give and take relationship. And David, understandably, is on his way to believing this about God, that he can somehow benefit God and make his life better. And if you think about it, it actually makes sense because David is king. His entire life, people are looking to him to help. He has the power to do so. He actually has the calling to do so. And so horizontally, he is blessing lots of other people, making their lives better. But what he does is he subtly and implicitly takes that heart vertically. And God says, "Uh uh-uh. David, I don't need you. You actually need me. Let's pick it up in verse 4. He says, but that same night, so after David tells this to Nathan, that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. He says, Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Have I not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day? I have not done that, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God doesn't need a house, and God doesn't want a house. You see, all throughout Israel's history, God has chosen, he has decided to live with and among his people. You see, his self-chosen address on earth was in the midst of the people in this tabernacle, in this tent. That's where he wanted to be. Not because he gained something from being with the people, but because the people gained something from being with their God. Let's keep going. Verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. This is amazing. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. That is jam-packed. Verse 9, God says, I will make for you a great name. David, this is actually recalling to mind a promise hundreds, maybe even thousands of years ago that God made to Abraham. It says this, way back in Genesis 12, verse 2, Abram at the time was a pagan man living in a pagan nation, and God called him to go about 900 miles west and south to start a new land, a new people, and brought him on a new mission. And this is what God tells him. He says, I Abram, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and here we go, I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And so when God tells us to David, this is not a brand new promise. This is the same old story. You see, God's mission of blessing the entire world through one specific family, through one group of people, this is continuing with David. So we go back to 2 Samuel 7, verse 10. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. God's going to do that. Now, again, think about this. If you're David, this would be totally confusing. His entire job, his calling as king, was to seek the well-being of the people. He's supposed to shepherd them. He's supposed to lead them. He's supposed to model what does it look like for me to be a light to the nations, to be united as a people. This cannot happen without David. This can't happen without his faithfulness. He's got to keep Israel protected from the surrounding pagan peoples as well. That was his job. And yet God tells David, I'm going to appoint the place for my people. Verse 11, I am going to give you rest 
from all your enemies. Think about David's life experience the past 5, 10, maybe 15 years. He has been on the run from King Saul, cave after cave after cave, not knowing where his next meal is going to come, not knowing if he's going to be killed in his sleep, not knowing his own well-being. He has had to watch out for himself, and yet God says, I'm going to give you rest from all your enemies. To hear that, somebody else is going to take care of those threats. For David to hear that God Almighty is in his corner, watching out for him, protecting him, securing his kingdom. Can you imagine the relief that he felt? Can you imagine what that would be like to be told, you know what, everything's going to be okay? It doesn't matter what you do. It does, but it doesn't because I am with you and I'm going to be the one to secure all of this for you. Rest, true rest is actually possible for you, David. Can you imagine Verse 11, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Remember David, he said, I want to build you a house, God. God says, no, 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 no. It's just the exact opposite. I am going to build you the house. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, the story's not over. I will raise up your offspring, singular, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom, this offspring's kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And this offspring, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. I mean, what do you say? What do you say to that? God's telling David, this house I'm going to build you, it's not going to be made of wood. It's not going to be made of cedar. It's not going to be made of stone, not of steel. It's going to be made of something stronger, my own flesh and blood. This is not going to be a physical place, a physical house, but a dynasty, a family, and an offspring, a son. A king is going to come from your line, David. And it's going to be not your son, but my son. And nothing can take my love away from him. Nothing's going to threaten that throne, not even your own sin, not even your own stubbornness, not even your kids' own sin, not even your grandkids and your great-grandkids, and on and on and on. They cannot threaten this kingdom that I'm going to build. That's how strong this promise is. Verse 18, King David went in, did the only thing you can do, sat before the Lord and said, who am I, oh Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O oh Lord. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O oh Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O oh Lord. He was, David was rendered speechless because he understood that this changed everything for him. Let's take a brain break just for a second. Play a little game, all right? Tell me if you can figure out who this is. Is it Justin Bieber? Is it Aaron Carter? Or is it Niall Horan? I have no idea who that is. Apparently, it's somebody famous, though. Who is it? Who do you think? Shout it out. Come on. It's the Biebs. There he is. Sorry, not Aaron Carter. Who's Niall Horan? Tell me later. Okay. All right, here's the second one. Am I saying that right? I'm probably not. Everybody's laughing at me. How about this one? Jennifer Lawrence? Britney Spears or Kristen Wiig? Kristen Wiig, yeah. Britney Spears. Eh, Jennifer Lawrence. There you go. All right, is this Chris Hemsworth? 
Is it Chris Pratt or is it me? No, just kidding, not me. Who is it? Chris Pratt? Chris, sorry. Chris Pratt, yes, there you go. Wasn't that fun? Okay, back to the story. Why did I do that? Give us a break. Okay, so God's promises to David. They changed everything for David. But here's the reality. They were not crystal clear. David got the fuzzy picture. Not the clear picture. David got the fuzzy picture. You see, he has an idea what is promised. He has an idea, he has an idea but he doesn't know how well it's going to come out. You see, he's got the fuzzy picture, and he and all of his descendants after him, and their descendants after them, for hundreds of years, they hear about this offspring that's supposed to reign one day. They hear about this king, and yet it's unclear who it is. It's unclear how it's going to happen. They've got the fuzzy picture. And so from David's day on, these promises are at the front of the Israelite heart and mind. This is central to their story as a people. They knew that a future king was coming, one from David's own line, and yet they don't know where it comes. Don't take my word for it. Take the Bible's word. I want to show you these verses. I say a lot of stuff up here where you hear a lot of things. What you should always do is say, hey, that sounds good, but what does the Bible say about it? So I want to do that right now. We're going to have three Old Testament passages. You can just look at them up here on the screen behind me. Passages that show that Israel was continually, not just one time, but throughout their history, looking for this future king, this offspring. Psalm 89, verse 3. You, God, have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring, in the singular, forever, and build your throne for all generations. You said it, God, and so we're going to continue to hope for it. The book of Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, capital B, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This branch, this king is going to reign. Isaiah 11, last one here. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father. So this is just another way of saying from the line of David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That day is coming. Someone is coming, but when? Who's it going to be? They reflected on these promises for years, they were read together, they were sung together, they were hoped for together. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, and in 2018, we have the benefit of hindsight. You see, we have the clear picture, because this promised offspring, the future king, is Jesus. But don't take my word for it, you need to take Jesus' word for it. He knows this about himself, and he is intentionally trying to communicate that to the people that he did ministry with back in the first century and us today in this room in 2,000 years and for another 2,000 years if he doesn't come back before then. This is what he says, three places in the New Testament. Let's just do three. Start in the book of Matthew chapter three. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased. You see, Jesus knew he was God's son. That's 2 Samuel 7, 14. This offspring will be my son. Book of Mark, next gospel over. Mark 1, Matthew, Mark, yeah, next gospel over. Mark 1, Jesus went into Galilee. 
proclaiming the good news of God. It's the gospel. What's the gospel? What is the good news? Well, here it is. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus knew that he was inaugurating. He was establishing a kingdom. That's back in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. The kingdom's going to come. Last one, Luke 4, verse 18. The spirit, this is Jesus speaking. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. He has chosen me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those are kingly tasks. Those are things only a king can do, and Jesus knowingly set out to perform them. You see, didn't, Jesus didn't just come to die for your sins and for my sins. He for sure did that, but he did so much more. If all we think about is Jesus just dying for our sins, that would be like saying Michael Jordan, he won an NCAA championship with the North Carolina Tar Heels in 1983. Okay, good, yes, great. You're kind of missing a big part of the story, how he's probably maybe the best basketball player ever, won six championships with the Bulls. I see some skeptics out there, it's fine, we'll talk later. Right, seven, yeah, yeah, right, right. That'd be kind of like saying J.K. Rowling, she wrote a book called The Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, she also wrote six more, and it's an amazing series, and it's changed the lives of lots of people, and she's made lots of money, and there's Hollywood, is it Hollywood Studios, Harry Potter Land, all that. Yes, she did that, but you're leaving out a big part of the story. It's the exact same way with Jesus. You say, Jesus became king, and he brought about and is bringing about a kingdom, You see, it's this kingdom, it's the rescue operation for the entire world. And it's happening through Jesus. He's come to confront all sorts of evil. He has come to restore God's rule and reign over the entire world by creating a people who are going to follow him, who are going to obey his teaching and live under this rule. And he reigns and he rules. How do you do it? By becoming a servant who would ultimately lay down his life for Israel and for all of the nations. See, Jesus is the long-awaited offspring of David, the king of an everlasting kingdom. Now, some of your minds might be blown right now, just, that's amazing. I can go home now, let's close in prayer. That's good. But some of you might be going, whoa, cool story, bro. What the heck does that have to do with my life today in 2018? Nifty stuff, I can't do it, you can, that's great. What does this have to do with me? And if that's the question you're asking, I'm so glad that you are, because that's exactly the question we need to ask ourselves. What the heck does this have to do with us? Why does this matter for my life, for our life here in 2018 at Mizzou in Columbia? Four implications. Here's the first. If Jesus is king, here's what it means. It means that the story isn't about me. One of the first things in 2 Samuel 7 that God tells David, he says, David's my servant. Again, first six chapters, David's king. He's, this is a different kind of king. He's the center of the story. And then here's this, here God calls David his servant. That's a big deal. That's a bold thing to say to a king, and yet it's true. David was serving God. The story wasn't about him. Some of you might have read Rick Warren's book called The Purpose Driven Life. It's the best-selling hardcover nonfiction book in history. It's at 32 million sales and continuing to climb. And I didn't know this. It's the second most translated book ever behind the Bible. Crazy. Here's the very first paragraph of that book. It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment. 
your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. Maybe that book is so popular because it hits on a truth that so many of us want to be true, whether we know it or not, that the story is actually not about me. Maybe it sold 32 million plus copies because so many people have been awakened to the reality that living for me, my own little story, my own little kingdom, might work for a while, might work for a week, might work for a semester, might work for four years in college, might work for 10 years, but in the end, it's, it's going to let you down. Have you seen that? Do you know that? It's not fulfilling. It doesn't work. The story's not about you. It's not about me. It's about King Jesus. Second, if Jesus is king... It relieves the pressure of life. When I was 12, I tried to break into my own house. I had to break in my, into my own house. So uh, my mom, single mom, she worked at Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital in St. Louis, worked about 5.30 or 6. I get home at 3. I need to go to a babysitter. I'm 12 years old, kind of feeling a little out of place, and I'm like, Mom, can you just let me have my own key? Finally, I bugged her long enough. Literally the very first day that I have the key, I somehow lock myself out of my house. No joke. I locked the door and I just went, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And so I'm frantically, I mean like tunnel vision, just I'm dead. I'm never gonna, not gonna get a key on my own until I'm 18, going to the babysitter's house. So I decide, okay, I've, I've got to break into my house somehow. So my 12-year-old mind decides, I think my back window to my bedroom might be open. So somehow I get a ladder and a broom and I climb up the ladder. I don't know how. And I'm like, okay, I think my window's open, but it's got a screen in front of it. How can I get to it? I just decide to just plow through the screen, rip it to shreds. Literally, there's like three marks. It, it was terrible. Turns out the window was locked. It didn't work. My mom gets home, finds out, key is revoked. It was bad. Yeah. When I realized I locked myself out, cool story, huh? Then I found $5. When I realized I locked myself out, yeah, it was totally up to me to get myself back in. Nobody else was going to help me. I was on my own. And because of that, the pressure that I felt, it's funny now, but at the time, and it was crushing. It was crushing pressure. And I think that story just a little bit captures what I know a lot of us feel. You know, we feel we've been locked out of the house somehow. We've got to do something to get back in. And that pressure, whatever it is, whatever it looks like, that can be crushing. You've got to have the perfect interview. You've got to say the perfect thing to impress that person on your date. You've got to have the perfect post. You've got to look a certain way. You have to get the perfect test score because if you don't, then your GPA goes from a 3.45 to a 3.25. And if your GPA goes from a 3.45 to a 3.25, then your GPA overall goes down and you're middle of the pack. And if you're middle of the pack, you can't get the internship. And on and on and on, the pressure just builds. It's like shaking a soda and it's going to burst. If you and I are king, if the story's about us, then the pressure's on us. It's up to us to let ourselves back into that house, whatever it is. But if Jesus is king, it means that we're not in charge of getting back into that house. He's given us access. He's given us to the keys to his house. And this is the house that we're made for. This is the house where true rest, true peace, true joy, true significance, true value, true meaning is found. You see, we are not responsible for securing our own identity and self-worth and value. 
You and I are not responsible for securing that. We were never made to do that. We cannot do that. But somebody has and somebody wants to, and that's King Jesus. One more story under this point. The Apostle Paul, he was given a task by God. He's supposed to preach the good news to the Gentiles, non-Jews in the first century. And so in this particular story, he's supposed to go to Corinth. It's a pretty large city, pretty influential city, and in many ways was very hostile to the gospel, hostile to Jesus. Now, I'm sure when he was told and he found out they had to go to Corinth, he's scared, he's nervous, he's feeling the pressure. He's the guy. He's got to take this gospel to the entire nations. What? How am I going to do that? Before he goes, Paul gets a dream, gets a vision from God. This is what it says in the book of Acts, chapter 18. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. And here we go, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I have many people in this city. Think about that. Paul hadn't even been there yet. And yet God went ahead of him and prepared those people for Paul. The pressure was off Paul. Of course, he had to go. He had to respond. That's important. But he wasn't starting the process. God was out in front of him, leading the charge, so to speak. And the same is true in our lives. You are never the first person to set foot in your sorority house. You're never the first person to set foot in your dorm or to sit down with a potential job interview with a future boss or to take that crazy test. Whatever situation you find yourself that you're having to face tomorrow or at the end of the semester or next year, you're not the first one there. God is. And since God's there, that relieves the pressure. You can trust that he's gone before you. See, if King, if Jesus is king, that takes the pressure off. The story's not about me. Relieves the pressure. Third, if if Jesus is king, we can be patient in our impact. Since the story's about King Jesus, it means that we are to live our lives for his purposes. And that purpose is to spread this kingdom. Spread the kingdom of love, of justice, and mercy to every corner of the globe. And he has decided for some reason to choose you and me to do that. He wants us to make an impact. But here's the deal. That impact actually takes time. It doesn't happen just like that. Patience is not my strong suit. Turns out I'm a very impatient person. Thought I was patient before I had kids. Not impatient. And I think that's true of our culture as well. Everything's got to happen. Efficiency and productivity is the name of the game. But it's not the name of the game necessarily in God's kingdom. If you think about it, David, he never saw this promise fulfilled. Or he's got the fuzzy picture. There's no way he could have. He had to go to work each day. Had to do the daily grind, perform his duties, all knowing there's this promise out there and I may never see it. You see, God is making a significant impact through Jesus, and yet it takes time. Last Jamaica story, one of my favorite parts of traveling down is, is, is hearing students' stories while they're down there. And, you know, there's always time built into the trips to share. And I heard one student this year how she heard about the trip from somebody the year before that it was so great, and so she decided to go last year, and it was a fantastic trip for her. She's able to see God work in new and profound ways in her life. It helped her to get a perspective on what was really important. And as I was listening, I was, I was really encouraged. Again, part of the reason why it was such a great trip, just to hear that God, all that God is doing in students' lives, I'm not the only one out there. But then I got to thinking, okay, how did these trips actually start? How did Veritas start taking trips down 
to Jamaica. And I, and I say this very humbly, recognizing that this is not the sole reason why, but I think a big part of the reason why is because of my wife. See, way she would be ter- terrified to know that I'm saying this. Say, you can't say that, Austin, but I'm going to say it because it's true. Her first trip was way back in 2003. And she had a free spring break, wasn't doing much, and she decided to go, and she loved it. I can't remember how many people she went with, maybe 20, 30, something like that. She loved it, and she was in a sorority at the time. She came back, told her sorority sisters about it, told friends in Greek life about it. Well, a farmhouse guy went, and in 2005, a farmhouse guy told another farmhouse guy named Kyle Richter about this trip. He went on the trip. Next year, some dinner speakers came to my fraternity. I heard about this trip. I went to Jamaica. God changed my life in Jamaica totally. I became a Christian. Some people have. Not everybody does. That was part of my story. Before you know it, Kyle and myself are on staff with Veritas. We're developing deeper relationships with this ministry, and we're going with other college students every year down to Jamaica. And now, it's not just me and Kyle. It's all of a, a lot of other staff. Hundreds of students over the years from Mizzou have gone down to Jamaica, have made an impact on Jamaicans down there, and especially have been impacted by God through the Jamaicans, through other people on the trip. Why tell that story? It took a while to get there, almost 15 years. And it happened... All because my wife decided to make a seemingly insignificant decision to go on a, break, on a trip on spring break to serve some people. And look what God did with it. Look what God did with it. He used that one choice in ways that she never could have imagined, ways that I never could have imagined when I went down my first time. This is what Jesus does. He takes our seemingly small choices, random choices, things that don't seem to matter. He takes them and uses them in ways we can't even imagine. He'll do this with your life. And he'll do this with my life if we let him, if we're patient. And because he's king, we can be patient because we know he's at work. Last one. If Jesus is king, obedience is not optional. Tim Keller was a pastor in New York City for years, and a phrase that he heard over and over again from people who were thinking about Christianity or tried it out and weren't sure in some form or another was, Christianity just didn't work for me. Have you ever heard that? You ever heard somebody say that? Have you said that? Do you think that now? Christianity just didn't work for me. Now, I get there's a lot of reasons why that might be the case. I'm empathetic to that. And yet, I think the reality with that response is that the Christianity, if we say that, the Christianity that we are trying out does not involve any sort of obedience And here's why. If you say Christianity doesn't work for me, it means that there are some sort of non-negotiable in there. Happiness, a relationship, a certain lifestyle, whatever. But Christianity didn't give it to me. You know, this shows that the heart behind all of this is I will obey Jesus if I get that. I'll obey Jesus if Christianity, if I can get this certain type of lifestyle, if I can get that certain type of relationship. And if we say, I'll obey Jesus if, that is conditional obedience. Conditional obedience is not obeying God, it's using God for our own purposes, for our own kingdom. Unless we drop the ifs, that means that we're still on the throne of our own life. But if Jesus is king, an everlasting king, bringing about an everlasting kingdom that will satisfy us beyond all measure, wouldn't it make sense to obey him unconditionally? Why would we want to do anything else? Even if it's tough, even if it isn't working for you or me, even if it isn't popular, wouldn't it be worth it to do that? 
as the worship team, the music team comes up, I'm gonna close with this. Jesus is the long-awaited offspring of David. Don't take my word for it. Take the Bible's word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. He's that long-awaited offspring of David. This kingdom, his kingdom is here. The kingdom is spreading. Here's the best thing. There's a spot for every single person. He wants every single person to play a part. So where's your place? What's your role in this story? How are you gonna contribute? Whatever it is, you should answer that question. Think about that question knowing that God has built a house for us in and through King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these amazing promises. It's, it's hard to wrap our heads around. I think you get just a little picture of what David must have been thinking and feeling. These promises that you're gonna build a house for us, that you're in charge, that you're at work, that you're ahead of us, that changes everything. It changes the way that we make decisions. It changes the way that we handle stress and hardship. It changes everything about our lives. Oh God, would you give us eyes to see all that you are for us in King Jesus, and would you help us to play our part, whatever that may be. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.